This morning, we're starting a series uh, where we're going to be working our way through the epistle of 1 Timothy. This is going to take us all the way through the summer, believe it or not. Um, 1 Timothy is this very short epistle, it's only six chapters, that gives us great insight into what the church is supposed to be like. Uh, In this letter, Paul is writing to try and explain to this young man what it looks like to help shape the church and guide it into all it's supposed to be. So this is a letter from Paul to this young pastor giving him instructions. So why would we uh, do this? Why are we doing this now? I like to give a couple of the reasons why. Um, First of all, we want to steep in a book of the Bible, right? If you've been around here any length of time, you'll notice that I like to flip-flop back and forth between like jumping through a book of the Bible systematically and then jumping into some topical stuff uh, to address some other topics in a different way. So this is one of these moments where we want to steep in the scriptures and get familiar with another book of the Bible so that we can add it to our tool belt and our arsenal of what we can use as we invest in others and what God can use to transform us. We want to use this to guide us in shaping the church. So we're going to look at this in a bit more detail in a moment. But if Paul is writing to a young man, giving him instructions on what the church is supposed to look like, there's probably some helpful things for us as we're looking at what this church is supposed to be. And so this is going to help guide us in what it is that we're trying to do here as a church. And as I always hope with the things that we're doing here, that this is going to confirm and affirm the things that we're already doing Because my job is to do what the Bible says and your job is to make sure I'm doing what the Bible says, right? So we're going to walk through this together and if we're not doing what the Bible says, you get to call me on it. Um, Number three, this book is going to call us to godly living. Again, that's the hope of everything that we're doing here, right? We're coming together to focus on God, to learn about him in order to live like him in the world. So the the overarching question that you're going to have to wrestle with as we look through this book is with every week and every passage, how well are you doing at living the things that that Paul is going to tell us as a church that we're supposed to be doing? How godly is your life and uh, what cost are you willing to pay to line your life up with what scripture requires of you? It's very easy as we uh, give our life to Jesus, right? Uh, I don't want to go to hell, give my life to Jesus. Uh, I want more peace in my life, give my life to Jesus. Um, I have anxiety, I have relational issues, I want more of Jesus in my life. It's easy for the benefits to give our lives to Jesus. But our spirituality always has a cost. And God is always asking us, are you willing to lay down your way of doing life to line it up with what the scriptures say? And so this book is going to call us to live in a different way and to hold the world uh, with, with, with a different posture. And then the last one up here, if you've been around a while, this will make perfect sense to you. If not, you're like, what does that mean? Um, the last thing is to prepare us for re-accreditation. So um, just a little bit of history here. Um, this church was in decline for quite a while. The, the, the pastor left. We had an interim pastor come in. The church uh, decided to bring in an interim pastor to help bring this church to a place of health. So the leadership of the church went to the denomination and said, hey, we're struggling. Would you provide oversight and help us get to a place where our church is healthy again? What happens in that moment with our denomination is they strip the church of its autonomy. So our bylaws get disbanded, our membership gets disbanded, all the leaders step down and the the district leadership of our denomination steps in and takes ownership of the church to help lead it to a place of health. 
And as part of that, they brought in this interim ministry to help the church diagnose the brokenness, identify what God is doing right now, dream a little bit about the future, and through that process, try and find a new pastor, which, lucky me, it got to be me. Um, uh, so that, that brought me in, and then the process since I got here is how do we deconstruct what was broken in the church, lay a healthy foundation, and walk forward into the fullness of calling that God has for our church. The end of that process is, uh, is called reaccreditation, where we petition the denomination to say, hey, our church doesn't need the training wheels anymore. We don't need a babysitter anymore. We're functioning healthily. Would you release us back into autonomy as a church? And the denomination is excited that we're on the right tracks and we're going to get there. So the content of First Timothy is explaining a lot about who the church is, how it's supposed to function, what leadership looks like. That's all part of helping us walk towards getting back to this place of, of health and autonomy as a church. Now, the one last piece I'll add on to that, um, the goal is not to get autonomy because we don't like what the denomination is doing and we don't like having a babysitter and we want autonomy to be able to do it ourselves. Um, that's not why the, the, the process that our district has taken us through has been really helpful for this church. And the people that have been here for a long time in the church, uh, and then me as the leader here, we're so grateful um, for the wisdom and the process that they bring us into. The goal is not to shed that, the goal is to function the way the church was intended to function. Uh, and so this is the last step for us of moving into the acknowledgement of the health that our church has grown into. Um, so it's been a two and a half year journey for me helping this rebuilding process. And so we're trying to walk towards that. So four purposes uh, as to why we're going to look at First Timothy. Um, steep in the Bible, guide us in shaping the church, call us to holy live and prepare us for getting back to this place of reaccreditation. I want to just pause there and bring us back to the words of this, one of the songs that we were just singing. Because I think it's easy to sing songs and not think about the words. And I think sometimes it's easy to listen to the words or read the words and like not want to sing it because of what it says. <laughs> um, but in that song, Refiner, I didn't tell you this, Ruben. You, you put this song in for the first time. Where'd you go? You're over there. You put that song in for the first time on Ordination Sunday. This is one of my favorite songs. And, uh, and I've always wanted it to be done. And I was like, oh, God, God knew. In the middle of that, that, that song, I don't know if you notice when you're singing these words, it says, I want, well, it says I want to be, I want to be tried by fire and purified. Take whatever you desire. Lord, here's my life. Many people in the church honestly are like, God, I want to be tried by fire. <laughs> How many of you sang that with full invitation for God to totally wreck your life? Right? It's easy to sing those words and not understand the full implication. The, the, the result of that prayer is, God, I want my life to look godly the way you want our lives to look. But are we willing to do what's necessary to get there? Are you willing to be purified by fire to let God take whatever he wants from your life in order to do what he wants to do? And then as you think about the church, so um, if you've been in the church a long time, you're already partway down this journey here. If you're newer to the church, you're bringing into the church some desires. But here's the question as we look at what Timothy says about the church. 
Are you willing for God to take your favorite parts of our church life away if it's what he desires? Are you willing for him to try us by fire and purify what's going on here? Are you willing to say to him, God, as our church becomes healthy, take whatever you desire and I will continue to give my life to you and follow you in the way we should go. If the answer is no, then we're going to have a hard time (laughs) with what it is that God wants to do. Um, I'm not about to strip everything and take everything apart. We've already done a lot of that so far. But it's about the posture that we're walking into. So, First Timothy, the gospel-shaped church. So this morning's sermon is, is going to be a little different. Whenever we are preaching through the book of the Bible, I always want to take time at the start to kind of walk through some introductory content that's helpful that we need to have in mind in order to understand the book as it's going. And so we're going to look at some introductory stuff now uh, and see where this goes. So uh, first of all, understanding the genre that we're preaching and teaching from is important. So this little book called 1 Timothy is what we call one of the pastoral epistles. So when you look at the New Testament, you've got the Gospels, you've got the book of Acts, and then you've got a whole bunch of letters written by people to churches and to individuals in the church. You've got these three letters that are called pastoral epistles because they're giving pastoral advice from Paul to some young pastors and how to lead the church. So we're in this genre of scripture that's all about giving pastoral advice about church management, church leadership. Um, and, and if you're curious, when we try and date these, they generally reckon 1 Timothy came first, Titus came second, 2 Timothy came third. Um, the New Testament organizes them based on length if you did not know other order. So three letters written by Paul to instruct young pastors on how they're going to live and how they're going to lead. A um, couple of details here that, that are also important to know. So Paul is writing First and Second Timothy to Timothy. Timothy is situated in Ephesus. We're going to look at that a little bit in a moment. And then Titus is in this little island in the middle of the Mediterranean called Crete. So Paul is writing to two people in two distinct locations, giving them the instructions that they need in order to effectively run the church in the context where they are living. Um, So for us, it's going to raise some implications. What does it look like for us to do what Paul is instructing them when we don't live in Crete and we don't live in Ephesus? What does it look like for us in the church here today? Um, Next is to look at the timeline that we're operating in. So where does this fit in the grand scheme of things in Scripture? Um, so you've got the Gospels, which tell us Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John telling us the story of Jesus, his life, his ministry, what he did here. Um, the book of Acts it comes next, and it's telling us um, everything that Jesus did uh, through the church and into the world. And so we've got 28 chapters in the book of Acts where we, we preached on this a, is it a year ago, two years ago. When did we go through Acts? Um, starting in Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So it's the story of the progressive spread of the gospel from this Jewish community in the middle of Jerusalem all the way uh, to these uh, Gentile nations around the ends of the earth. The end of the book of Acts, we see Paul imprisoned uh, and there he begins to write some letters from prison that we call the prison epistles. So Colossians, uh, Philemon, Ephesians, Philippians generally believed to be written in that order, written from prison uh, and then distributed that we have in the Bible. Then the book of Acts ends 
And to be honest, there is a whole ton of debate that we're not going to talk about because I don't think it's helpful in what we're trying to accomplish around when these were dated. Was it Paul? Was it not Paul? We're going to sit in this place where the Bible says it's Paul and we're fitting it into the timeline that we see in the book of Acts and we're going to make sense of it that way. So after the book of Acts finishes, there's a period of time where ministry continues to happen Um, We know from history that Paul ends up imprisoned again and ends up dying. So these pastoral epistles that were, 1 Timothy that we're going to look at, comes after the book of Acts finishes and, and right before the end of Paul's life as he's imprisoned again and then killed for his faith. Um... And so that's where we're situated. If you look up there, I've got it like 1 Timothy and Titus are believed to be written in the interim. 2 Timothy believed to be written from prison. His urging to Timothy, it's the end of my life. There's not much time left. Let me give you my last exhortations before you leave. Um, So 1 Timothy probably written 62 to 64 AD. 2 Timothy somewhere 65 to 68 AD. So within 30 years of Jesus dying, uh, these are written down, given instructions to the church. So we're one generation after the disciples um, as the church has been established. So a little bit of background information that we need to know. Last piece that's that's just the seminary details. Um, The purpose of the letter, right? We can come up, we can read, we can figure out the purpose, we can figure out the purpose of the series for teaching it. Um, But Paul has this statement in 1 Timothy 3 that gives us his explanation of why he's writing everything that he's writing in this letter. And again, as as you read these words, think about where we're at as a church and what we're trying to accomplish with this series Paul says to Timothy, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. So Paul's purpose in this whole epistle is so that we would understand how people in the church are supposed to live. What does it look like to live under God's roof? What are his rules of the house that we need to adhere to? So, let's jump into the beginning of 1 Timothy. I always encourage you to bring your Bible if you have it and scribble and write on it as we go. Um, But let's start at the beginning of 1 Timothy. We're just going to look at his introductory statement today. And we're going to use this to kind of give the background that we need in order to interpret the rest of what's going to go on in the letter. So, here's his opening greeting um, to, to Timothy. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the end of his introduction and then the letter will go on. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus. So, so what I want to do here is look at, this doesn't want to see the back, we're good. I want to look at these three names one at a time, and uh, if you've been around the church for a while, hopefully what I'm saying is familiar to you because we need this information in order to interpret scripture effectively, and if not, hopefully there's some new information for you that will make us more effective at understanding what God's word says. So I want to start with Paul, 
the first name that comes up in this. And and let's just look at this verse and pull out a couple of words here before we jump into other parts of scripture. So Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God, our savior. So this letter opens with a declaration. This is the famous Paul that has been described in the book of Acts. Paul has engaged in three campaigns, missionary journeys. He's gone on three big mission trips uh, around the known world at that time, planting churches, re-establishing, encouraging churches. Um, And Paul begins the letter with this word apostle. And I want us just in our head to put a capital A on this word. Whenever we're reading an epistle in the Bible, whenever you're reading an epistle that existed in ancient Near Eastern history, the introduction of the letter is actually setting the stage theologically for what's about to happen in the rest of, of, of the letter. And so Paul here, just by using the word apostle, is, is declaring that he is in a unique position to speak about the truth of Jesus and the function and formation of the church. The original apostles were given a special, unique task. They wrote and organized the New Testament. They wrote the epistles, parts of the Bible. They interpreted the Old Testament to help people understand what that meant for the church. And they gave lots of instructions about what God intended the people of God to be here on the earth. So when Paul starts by saying apostle, he's reminding Timothy, I have a unique role here that God has given me about the founding of the church. And as people who understand the truth of scripture, we hold it in high esteem. We understand that Paul as an apostle is not just giving instructions that apply to Timothy as he's sitting in Ephesus, but timeless truths that when we understand the principles in there help us thousands of years later to stand upon the truth of what God is. So foundational, inspired by God, and therefore we should listen. Paul throws in this other little statement, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the command of our God, he's reminding Timothy and any other people that would read this of his story. The apostles were the 12 disciples that Jesus chose and who lived with him and ministered with him in the world. Uh, Paul was not one of those people. Paul was a Jewish rabbi. He was a Pharisee. He was a persecutor of the church. And he has this radical experience where Jesus appears to him. And and through that experience, Jesus gives him a very unique mandate to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. So Paul, when it comes to taking the gospel outside of Jerusalem, I have a unique mandate given by God to take this to the ends of the earth. It's not just his desires. It's not just his ideas, but a unique calling that he carries. So let's just by way of reminder, jump back into um, Acts chapter 9 and remind ourselves of what happened in Paul's journey that brings him to this point. So Acts chapter 9, I'm going to start in verse 3, says, as he neared Damascus, he's on a journey to kill some Christians, uh, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up, go into the city, and you'll be told what you need to do. He's struck blind. He goes into the city, has to find this guy, Ananias. Uh, Ananias is upstairs praying. God's like, hey, this guy Saul's going to come. 
Ananias is like, Saul, the guy that's trying to kill us all, why should I go to him? And God says, don't worry, I've got this. And here's the message I want you to give to Paul. He says, the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles. Biblically, that's us. And their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. This moment where, Paul, uh, where Jesus puts this mandate on Paul's life to be the person that takes the gospel to the ends of the earth at great cost to himself. just want to pause with this part of the story and, and just bring it back to us for a moment. Most of us don't have a moment in our life that we can talk about where we're on a horse and a blinding light knocked us on our horse. We fell on the ground, struck blind for three days and had a dramatic revelation uh, and healing in order to send us out into the world, right? We don't have that moment. Someone might. Uh, I don't hear a horse rider, uh, just making sure. Uh, one. So... <laughs> Um, we might not have a moment like that but by nature of being called by Jesus to follow him every one of us is given a mandate just like Paul we know we've been given the mandate of the great commission to take the gospel to the ends of the nation just like Paul we know we've each been given unique personalities, unique giftings, unique understandings of God and who he is in order to be effective at taking the gospel to the people where he's placed us. Um, and, and we've all been placed in specific contexts. The family that you're in, the neighborhood that you're in, the job that you do, the communities you serve, God has hand-placed you there with a mandate like Paul to be effective at taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. So as Paul is talking, Paul, an apostle who has a unique command and mandate to help take the gospel and spread it from its Jewishness to this Gentile inclusive community. It goes on a little bit and he's setting more of the stage theologically for what he's about to say because he's not just addressing him, Paul the apostle who's got a command, he puts the emphasis where we should always be putting the emphasis on the God who's the one who gives the command and here he's very specific in his wording. So as a Jewish person talking to Jewish people or as a Gentile person in a Gentile community, when they use the word God, they have very specific ideas in mind of who that God is. So when he starts that I've received this command from God and says the words, our savior, he is rooting to the Jewish people in particular that this is the God of the Jewish people, the God who is our savior. We could spend a lot of time jumping back through scripture and looking at all the places that we see God as savior, but it's rooted in the whole story of the Exodus where the Jewish people are slaves in Egypt and God calls them out of Egypt with the plagues and rescues them from slavery to bring them into the promised land. All through scripture, God is talked about as the one who saves them. But Paul wants to go further and clarify that it's not just the Jewish God, this this ultimate creator figure who's the savior of Israel, but he is also Christ Jesus, our hope. And not just the hope for the Jewish people, but the hope for all of the world. And it's interesting in this moment, if you look one example in scripture, there's loads of places we could go to. Psalm 65, 5, um, where the psalmist is explaining who the God of Israel is. 
You answer us with awesome and righteous deeds. God, our Savior, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the furthest seas. So for a Jewish man like Paul, when he's talking about God the Savior and the hope of the world, he's talking about God the Creator, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What Paul is helping people to see here, he's taking these attributes and he's applying them both to God and to Jesus, letting people know that Jesus is the one who is the savior of the world and Jesus is the one who brings hope. Um, If you were to read Isaiah 40 through 66, kind of the last chunk of the book, um, Isaiah is talking about this new exodus that's going to happen. So God rescued Israel out of slavery into the promised land, but a servant is coming and there's going to be a new exodus that's going to lead the people in a spiritual way from spiritual hardness of heart and into wholeness and into the fullness of the kingdom that God has. So in these statements... um, Go back a little bit. In these statements, he is giving not just the declaration of who he is and his authority, but he's rooting this letter for Timothy in the fact that this is the God of Israel who is also Jesus Christ, who is the hope of the world. That person is the one that made me an apostle. That person is the one that commanded me uh, to to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so with that authority, I'm now going to give you some instructions. Right, The best I can do is stand up here and say, Jesus has called me. You as a church and the denomination have ordained me. I've gone to Bible college uh, uh, way too much and I've read a whole ton of books and Jesus is working in my life. And with all of that, I can give you some instructions, but I can't reestablish what the church was supposed to be, be in the way Paul was. So this is a different level of authority these instructions carry And if that's true, then there's a different level of weightiness to the kind of response that we give individually to the words that we're going to read and that we give as a church in shaping how we function around these things. So, first Paul, now Timothy. We need to consider who he is because if you're not all versed in all the content of the New Testament, we don't know who is this guy that, that, uh, that Paul is addressing. So, Paul to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So I'm going to comment on a couple of things before we jump back into some of Timothy's uh, story. But here Paul addresses Timothy as my true son in the faith. This is a beautiful statement that is so loaded that more of what we're about to look at helps explain Timothy is a person who came to faith under Paul. And so in some sense, he is a son in Christianity through the nature of Paul being the one that gave or led him into this new birth in Christ. Timothy is someone who traveled extensively with Paul as Paul was engaged in his second missionary journey. And part of his third, Timothy is there right alongside him. Perhaps like Luke wrote the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And Luke was present for a lot of what was going on that we read of the early church. I don't know if Luke or Timothy is the more central character who had more time traveling in Paul's company. So this is someone that knows Paul deeply, knows his ministry inside out, and has been entrusted. He is one of Paul's most trusted co-laborers in the faith. And so at this point in the story, like Timothy is part of the church in Ephesus that Paul planted, and Paul is trusting him to lead this church that he has shepherded and loved. 
Let's look at the beginning of the story in the Bible where Timothy first appears. So this is Acts chapter 16. We're, in, we're just into Paul's second missionary journey. And this is what it says. So Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was, a Jew, was Jewish and a believer, but his father was Greek. So he's the product of a mixed marriage. And remember, in Jewish culture, that's not supposed to be happening. Um, So his mother is Jewish. She's a believer. I love the but. His father is Greek, not necessarily a believer. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of Timothy. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey. So he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in the area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. So what's going on here? You've got this guy whose mom is Jewish, but a believer in Jesus, who has a father who's Greek and doesn't look like he's a believer or would have said that he was some kind of God-fearer. Whose faith won out in Timothy's journey? His dad's, because Timothy is not circumcised like any good Jew would be. So significant influence from this Gentile, non-believing dad in Timothy's life. And if you whispered his mom, then ultimately true, right? Because through his mom and his grandmother, Lois, Timothy comes to faith and is brought up in the truths of scripture. So you've got this moment where you've got this guy with this mixed background. If you're here and you come from a not Christian family and a mixed family, there's great hope. Um, That's me. Um, This moment, all the believers in the area thought well of him. And you've got this scenario where Paul wants to go from synagogue to synagogue, preaching the gospel, helping people understand the truth about Jesus the Messiah. To do that, you can't take a non-Jewish person into the synagogue and keep the place clean. So he makes this decision uh, to have Timothy circumcised, not because circumcision was essential for his salvation, but in order to be culturally able to step into the places they needed to go to preach the gospel to the people that needed to hear it. The last part of this, this bit of the story says, so they travel from town to town and they, they deliver decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So you've got a very unique situation here. Acts chapter 15, there has been a council of the church in Jerusalem trying to figure out, we've got Jewishness with all of the laws, we can't eat food sacrificed to idols, we've got to be circumcised, uh, there's these things we've got to do, and then you've got all these Gentiles coming into the church, and they're getting saved, and they're not circumcised, and they eat food sacrificed to idols, and they don't care if there's blood and stuff, and there was a big debate in the church about what is appropriate and what is not, and so they called this council together to decide what is the appropriate ruling? Do we require all of the Gentiles to conform to the Jewish way of being in order for them to be part of the church or does God have a different plan? So the church comes together and decides, no, they don't need to do these things and it, they give them a handful of instructions. Just don't eat the food sacrificed to my idols. Don't eat it if it's got the blood in it. Uh, I, I, I can't remember what the other two are off the top of my head. And he's like, but we're good. So this momentous decision happens And then the council says, okay, well, now we need people that are going to take this message to all of the churches, both Jewish and Gentile, to help them understand the truth. So we need people who are authoritative 
And we need people who are gifted and equipped to do this. And so who do they set apart? They set apart Paul, and one of the people that goes with him is Timothy. Paul, a man of Roman heritage, who's Gentile, who is a Pharisee of Pharisees, the most strict of Jews you can possibly get. So this kind of mud blood, if you're a Harry Potter fan, this mixed blood person uh, coming from both places. And then they pick Timothy, this guy whose mom is Jewish and whose dad is Gentile, and they send them to say, as someone who lives in the Jewish world, these people have given us the authority to say, we don't have to do these things. And as someone that's Gentile, I'm so glad that I'm freed from all the commands of the law, uh, and that here's what the the church has uh, instructed us to do. So Timothy's unique in his heritage, in his spiritual condition, uniquely tasked for this job. He has the respect and authority of the people, so he's sent to do the job, and enough so that him, alongside Paul, are given all the authority of the original church to take a message to the church about what it is that God intends them to do. And so Paul, uh, Timothy heads out with Paul on this journey and in many senses learning on the job how to lead the church so that as he's now sitting in Ephesus with leadership of the church, he understands who, who Paul is, what he's done, uh, and is so, is so full of understanding of who Paul is and what he does that many times Paul will send him out when Paul can't be there to be a living, walking example of the kind of ministry that God has called Paul to have. Here's a couple of places where Timothy is is mentioned, and I want to put these in here just again to elevate the authority that Paul has given to Timothy. So of all of the New Testament epistles that, that Paul writes, there's only three that Timothy's not mentioned in. But many of them, when Paul is writing, he doesn't just use his own name to authorize the writing of the letter, but he's elevating the authority of, Tim, of Timothy by putting his name alongside. So when he's writing to the Thessalonians, when he's writing to Corinth, when he writes to Rome, when he writes to Philippi, when he writes to Colossae, and then he writes to, to Philemon, um, all of these, he has these moments. It's Paul and it's Silas and Timothy elevating him and authority within the church. It points in Romans 16, you know, he's writing a letter, he doesn't need Timothy's name in there, Timothy's never been there, Paul's never been there, but just planting this seed, Timothy, who's my co-worker in this stuff, also sends his greeting. So Paul makes a deliberate effort with all of the churches to elevate and honor Timothy, and that speaks something about what the apostle Paul must think about this young man. A couple of other verses that I want to show you right now, really to explain when Paul says, Timothy, my true son in the faith, what does he have in mind here? So look at some of this of how Paul describes Timothy as he's writing to the different churches. So so 1 Thessalonians 3, when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. And so we sent Timothy who's our brother and co-worker in God's service and spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in the faith. We could not come, so we sent the next best person that we could possibly send. Timothy's gonna come and he's gonna strengthen and encourage you. Paul the encourager, thinking Timothy's gonna do a good enough job. There's probably a 20 to 30 year age gap between Paul and Timothy. Um, When he's writing to the Corinthians, Therefore, I urge you, Corinthians, this is Paul, I urge you, Corinthian church, to imitate me. 
And he's going to tell them in 11.1, imitate me in the ways that I imitate Christ. So I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I'm sending you Timothy, my son whom I love, who's faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere and in every church. So I, Paul, can't be there. You need to copy me. So I'm going to send you Timothy because he lives this life so well and understands the ministry that God has given me so well that if you imitate him, you'll be imitating me. And by imitating me, you'll be imitating Jesus. I think we forget some of this in the church, the call to imitation. I've asked this question here before. If someone was to imitate you in your faith journey, would they look more like you or would they look more like Jesus? Would they look more like Uh, the kingdom of God or would they look more like American culture or whatever other culture that you've been growing up and shaped in? Is your life an invitation to imitation that would lead people closer to Jesus? Timothy, so like Paul in his ethos that you could copy him and end up in the same place. As he writes to the Philippian church, I hope in the Lord that I get to send Timothy to you that I may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him. Barnabas, Silas, Priscilla, Aquila, Apollos, I have no one else like Timothy. You know that Timothy has proved himself because just like a son with his father, he's served me and the work of the gospel. What's he talking about there? Culturally, a son would follow in the father's business. They'd learn the trade side by side. The son would eventually take over from the father. This guy has been like a son to me, laboring in this and understands it all. And so I hope that I get the chance to send them to you because it's gonna be a real gift when he comes. Clear clearly Paul holds Timothy in high esteem. Clearly, Timothy is already equipped. He's full of the spirit. He's been trained. He's already been sent people. He's already been sent places to carry the message of the church, to show people how to live the Pauline way. And yet we get to this point in the journey where Paul's like, there's more. Like I've got more instruction for you. And as you're gonna be responsible for helping this church become all that it needs to be, I've got more that I need to give you to understand. So, from Paul to Timothy, my son in the faith. And then what does he offer him? Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Three key words. Don't want to spend a huge ton of time on these. Grace, unmerited favor. This quite often was used as a Gentile greeting um, to say the favor of God be upon people. So this greeting that Paul wants to give with all of his authority and all of his love and affection for Timothy. This Timothy from that place is what I want to give you. I want to give you a blessing of the favor of God upon your life. I want to give you mercy. This word mercy from God in the Greek version. So the Old Testament is written in Hebrew and some parts in Aramaic. The New Testament is written in Koine Greek, which is just the common tongue. There is a version of the Bible that we call the Septuagint, which has the Old Testament Hebrew translated into Greek. So you've got the Old Testament in Hebrew, you've got the New Testament in Greek, and you've got the Septuagint, which is the whole Bible written in Greek. The word that's used here for mercy, elios, when when the Greek translates the Old Testament, 
they put this word everywhere in the Old Testament. It has the word chesed, which is the word we translate covenant love or covenant faithfulness or, or God's loyal love, his covenant love for his people. So this is more than just may God be merciful to you. This is the covenant love of God resting on your life. And why does that matter? Because God's covenant love is the thing that formed his people. The people of Israel were formed and called and brought into the covenant love of God. The covenant love of God is the very thing that when Israel would reject them and rebel and chase after the things of the world that kept God pursuing them and loving them and forgiving them and being present with them even when that was the case. So may you have unmerited favor and blessing from God. May you find yourself in the covenant community of God's people where it doesn't matter if you make a mistake, God is with you and with his people. And I think more encouraging for him as a pastor, it doesn't matter if the people get it wrong, I am faithful. And as long as you're faithful to me, I will be faithful to convict and change and challenge and bring my people to a place of health. And then the last one, peace, or again, translated from the Old Testament, the, the, the Jewish blessing, shalom. May everything in your life be the way it's supposed to be. Peace with God, peace with people, with your neighbor and your enemy, and peace with the land or the created order. So Paul in this place, right, just, just recap this. I have this apostolic authority to determine what the church looks like from God and a unique mandate to take it. You, Timothy, are my beloved son. I have no one like you. You're like my mirror image and the main person that I send out into the world to do this stuff. So with all the authority that I have and all the affection I have for you, here's my blessing. Because you're gonna need this to lead this church. You need the favor and empowerment of God. You need his covenant love and constant reminders that though they're gonna mess up and not do the things that you ask, I am faithful And may your life and your church be at peace with me, at peace with their neighbors, find peace with their enemies, and find peace with the world round about them. What an amazing blessing from such a great place of authority. Last name, Ephesus. So from Paul to Timothy, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus. So we need to understand a little bit about Ephesus in order to understand what Paul is encouraging Timothy to do and some of the challenges that he faces there. I want to give you a little question to think about in preparation and hopefully through the series you might come up with an answer to this. Why does Paul have to urge him to stay? What is going on in Timothy or in the situation that Paul's having to convince him. (laughs) Please stay there. I urge you when I went to stay there in Ephesus. What's going on? Is it fear? Is it hard? Is it difficult? Is he insecure? What is it that makes him want to run? What is it that makes you want to run when God gives you something that you're supposed to do? Um, And perhaps Timothy was feeling something similar. So where's Ephesus? Um, We got to understand the geography um, so if you don't know where Turkey is in the world, Ephesus was in what they called at that point Asia Minor. So Turkey's over there in the Middle East. Um, I don't ever want to assume people know geography. Um, and so sometimes it's just helpful to see a little orange blip on a map to know where this is. not in Israel. Uh, we've moved through in, into Turkey for this one. And then within Turkey, 
You'll see Ephesus is the red square in the bottom left there. So we're talking about the west coast of Turkey. So this is a coastal town. It's a cosmopolitan area. It's under Roman rule. Um, So there's a proconsul there helping govern the affairs there in this part of the world. It has a, a... Port. I was like, what's the word I want? It has a seaport there, so trade is rich, travel is rich, um, there is wealth, there is a, a blending of culture. You've got Jewish people here, you've got Gentile people here. As with every Hellenistic, so Greek-oriented culture, there are multitudes of gods being worshipped here, and there is one being worshipped above all the others called Artemis. We'll talk about her in a second. Um, if you look at the ruins of the city, there's the ruins of a giant library. Uh, so education was important. There was a giant theater that seated about 24,000 people. Um, so athletic games were important. Athleticism uh, and, and theater, like performance, was important to these people. So it's cultured. Um, and then you had this temple to Artemis. So you can go there today. I like to show pictures like this just to remind us that this is a real place. This is not fiction. Right, you can get on a plane today, you can fly to Ephesus in Turkey. That picture in the middle, that stack of bricks, is the only it's the foundation of one of the pillars in the temple of Artemis, and it's the only part of the temple that still exists today. But you can go there and you can stand and touch this temple that is the, the focus of the story in Acts chapter nineteen. And uh, artists, when they try and depict what it looks like, they think it looked like this. Um, as they look at other things that happened in that time period, this was, at the time that it was built, one of the seven wonders of the world. Considered one of the most iconic and beautiful buildings that, that you could see. And this was the center of religious life in, in Ephesus. So this cult of Artemis, Artemis was a female deity. She was a warrior, princess, god, um, and, and so she was a fighter. She's often depicted as a statue of a woman that has multiple breasts, a symbol of her fertility. So she was the focus of their fertility for childbearing, their fertility for crops. She was the focus of military victory. And it was a religion that was ruled and governed by women. So the priestess of the temple of Artemis was one of the most important people in the city of Ephesus. Um, And the way you'll see this as we go into the letter that Timothy writes and as he's got things to say about the men and the women, these women were extravagant in the way that they would dress themselves, opulence, gold, trying to show their wealth and their status within society and and, uh, in an effort to show how mighty and powerful uh, this Artemis is. Some cultures called her Diana. Um, so Diana or Artemis, this, this, this uh, fell deity here. And so Paul is in a culture. Now I want you to think about this as you think where we're living. So he's in a culture where it is predominantly not of the people of God. There is a Jewish community that lives here. Uh, there is a church that's been planted. The dominant religion is, well, there's multiple religions, but the dominant one is around this temple of Artemis. And in this place, Paul has to get the church and help them understand how do you live in this culture? How do you honor God in a culture that's promiscuous and focused on all the things that oppose the ways of God? How do you bring people from a place of having been steeped in religion that's 
false into a place of understanding the one true God and living their lives based on his teaching? How do you help this little church as it's been established in the middle of this, the, this cosmopolitan ch- culture? How do you help them stand firm in their faith and in their faith practices in a way that's going to demonstrate the love of God to the community around about you so that you can reach them with the hope of the gospel and lead them to that place of salvation? And this is the charge that Timothy has. This is what Paul is writing to him to help him do and understand. And so you can see what Paul is encouraging them to do has got to be really helpful for us living in the culture that we live where we've got the same issues on the table and the same challenge to live faithfully to the gospel and the way that makes Jesus attractive to the people that we're called to, 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 to share the gospel with. So as I said, a bunch of background information today, right? There are people in the room that are geeks and you're like, best sermon ever. And there's people in the room like, squirrels, what's for lunch? But this is all, this, this is all essential content to help us understand what it is that we're going to be talking about and bring the cultural context into the letter as we expound it together. So to close with, I just, with everything we've just talked about, I want to read Paul's opening again. Just to show you when you take the time to understand the background information, the difference in what you understand in this passage now versus when we start is the work that we're going to do all through the epistle. So Paul starts his letter, he says, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. And as I urged you when I went to Macedonia, stay in Ephesus. Let me pray. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the authority that it carries that 2,000 years later, these words convict our hearts. They teach us how to live. They show us what the church is supposed to be like. So God, we are committing through this series to submit ourselves to the apostolic authority of Paul. We're submitting ourselves to the authority of scripture and we ask for your help. Help us to read this epistle, this letter, to understand what you were telling Timothy to do, what the church was supposed to be like. Help us to translate that to our culture today and help us to become a gospel-centered, gospel-shaped, gospel-saturated church that looks the way you intend it to look so that we can be effective at reaching the world with the good news of Jesus. So God, open our hearts and lead us where you want to take us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.